Hi, welcome to Infinite Leaders Live. I'm Lewis Keynes, and as ever, our why is simple, to be better educators and better humans. We want to support and encourage infinite learning for everybody, regardless of rank, role, or responsibility, to be willing to listen and learn. As ever, I'm joined by my pal, Alan. How are you doing, Al? Yeah, good. Thanks, Lewis, and really enjoyed the shows we've done so far, and I hope our listeners have learned as much as I have. We'll continue to focus on the things you don't get taught at university or any courses, real-life lessons from real-life people with real-life experience. And as ever, we're recording live and learning as we go along. As anybody who's sent us feedback will know, we live and breathe what we're talking about. We want to get better. And if you want to get in touch, you can do on Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter, also at theinfinitelearners.com. You'll find our podcasts on all podcast platforms too. So uh, listen and learn, and please share with your colleagues as we get started. Alan, let's get stuck in. Yeah, looking forward to today. It's some, some real gems of wisdom will come out of this. Steve Salis is the author of Educating Football, a book which has sold over 3,000 copies worldwide and the creator of this fantastic website, solutionmindset.com. Education, leadership and football is his life passion. Steve was an academy football and then progressed into the best job in the world, which is a PE teacher. Steve worked in London secondary schools and progressed into leadership with responsibility for whole school teaching and learning. He's completed a master's in teaching, learning, leadership and educational psychology from King's College London. He's now back working in the professional football industry, helping players and coaches fulfill their professional and personal objectives. Wow, Steve, amazing story. Can you tell us a little bit about your life journey, please? Well, I think, lads, I need to start with Cersei saying thank you for having me. Uh, we've got lots to discuss today. And secondly... It's very straightforward. I'm just a bloke called Steve trying to help people. So, um, <laughs> Alan, where do you want to start? What do you want to, what do you want to discuss first? Yeah, love to know, go back to your childhood and, and talk us where you went to school, how you then got into your football and then what, quite happened, not, what happened with your football to then take you into teaching. Yeah, I mean, obviously you had Jake Humphries on last week, which you just mentioned pre on air. I've, I've been fortunate enough to discuss this part of my story really with him on the high performance podcast, which hopefully will be out shortly. So I think like I call myself a failed footballer on Twitter guys. Um, you know, the reason I say that is being a lot, a lot of players that were miles better than me. Um, and I really, I wasn't, I wasn't good enough to be a footballer. So I did the next best thing and, and become, uh, become a teacher. But I think the gap in between, I think it's important that listeners know that I wasn't a traditional academic. I was placed in bottom set at school. Um, I've sort of got to be in my bonnet about labeling and, and setting. I think school setting can be quite dangerous, uh, certainly affected my childhood and led me to fail my GCSEs. And then I, I went and did a scholarship at Brighton and did retakes. Uh, so I did night schools, the only footballer of pretty much that generation, went and did retakes and then, and then carried on and scraped some A-levels in order for me to get to uni and go to London. So I was born and bred in Brighton, which was uh, from a working class family. Dad was a builder, mum was a housewife. Um, after my parents' separation, my mum went actually went and did a primary teaching degree. My brother was a PE teacher and is now a head teacher in Kuala Lumpur. Um, so I'm from a family sort of, of you know, of, of growth rather than necessarily a family of natural academics. And then really the main part of my story is I worked in, worked in like four failing schools in London, which was, I can't lie, hardcore and the most challenging thing I've ever done. Or, however, the most rewarding thing I've ever done. Um, but people often ask me is how did I become sort of this behavioural specialist? I, th I think I just learned to do it. My, my free placements, I mean, I did an undergrad, I did a B.Ed degree, so I sort of committed to education early compared to the, you know, the other PGCE route. And I sort of got to my first year of teaching already pretty good, if I'm honest. And I don't mean that in a weird, arrogant way. I was, 
you know, quite quite sophisticated at that age because I'd worked, uh, I worked on placement. I'd done three placement schools where uh, we were crazy places. So I sort of then flew. I went. I got my first job at a special measures school in a place in Eltham in South East London. So it was the third biggest school in the country. We had 2,700 kids in the place. And it was, um, you wouldn't be able to get a job now in the special measures as a newly qualified teacher. It wouldn't be allowed. But um, I had 15 PE teachers in that school, fellas, and 14 of them were X factor good. So when, when I talk about luck, there's a massive element of luck to my journey where I got modeled good practice. I got modeled doing Saturday mornings without pay. I got modeled dealing with difficult kids all week and then still doing Saturday mornings without pay. I got modeled great teaching and learning. I got modeled what effort looked like. I got modeled all of these elite behaviors, which I call them now in sport, by great teachers. And in summary to this conversation, guys, the only reason I can do what I do now in business is simply because of my teaching experiences. And, I, and I'd say that's to any teacher listening out there that if you are top end teacher and you want to be top end, and, and let me explain this. I wasn't born top end. I was made, I was obsessed with getting better. That, that's really been my super strength compared to me just fluking a career in business, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It's perfect sense. And it, it's incredible that as a teacher, you, you know, you get such a wide range of skills that you develop through time, through different scenarios. And, and a lot of it, you know, it's not your 10,000 hours of practice. It's 10,000 hours of experience and learning and retesting you know some some of that is just ridiculous the things that you, you you are learning as you go along what are the best transferable skills are the most useful that you've found that you've taken out of teaching or you, you still go back in your head to those teaching days when you're applying it now with with elite footballers well, I think the first thing I, I, I really use well is emotional control. I think, I think, again, I had to learn that. We were talking off air again about having a toolbox as a young teacher when you haven't got many tools. And now as a 42-year-old man, when I, you know, what's the point of me talking about lifelong learning to the kids if I'm not a lifelong learner myself? That'd be a bit weird. And the one thing about teaching where I find a bit weird is that a lot of teachers are quite ignorant and they don't want to get better. Um, a lot of teachers necessarily don't listen very well. Now, I'm not labelling the teaching industry, so don't take what I say literally in this podcast, but a lot of teachers don't listen very loud. A lot of teachers don't understand the importance of genuine teamwork and the we, not me mentality needed for school growth or a community. So I think the first thing is, is emotional control. What did I learn there? I learned that if I haven't got great congruency between my verbal and my nonverbal body language, I'm going to get found out quite quick. Let me explain this. I've got a year 11 telling me at 8.30 in a Monday morning he's not going to get his coat off in front of 29 of his mates trying to show off and be, and be difficult. And if I lose control at 8.30 on a Monday morning because he wants me to, to rise up and, and play his game, I'm, I'm probably going to lose. So what other than I've, have I got is please get your coat off, please get your coat off, please get your coat off. And then the language, if you choose to ignore me, I'm not going to be angry, I'm just going to be disappointed. And then the school code of conduct says this. So, you know, see you later, two-day internal exclusion type thing, without ever getting aggressive, without losing my rag, without ever, you know, losing that. So I think, and that sounds really weird, that's the biggest, one of my biggest skills is that the ability to learn, and this is important for the younger teachers, I've learned to do that. Um, through through hours and hours and hours of getting it wrong. Um, I think the next transferable skill, and this is probably from sport rather than from education generically, is being brought up in sport. And, and, and in sport, um, when, you're, when your teammate is struggling, from a six-year-old, which I started playing football, 
when someone in your team is struggling, you don't think about helping them. You just go and help them. That, that's just what sport does. And I think that conditioned behavior where we can transfer this conditioning, this, this most underrated skill of helping out people. Um, I often felt, and I have to tell this story while I'm here, when I line managed music, I managed lots of departments in my teaching career, but when I line managed music, I was having a beer with a, with a senior uh, vice principal, my peer in the pub, and I was saying, I've got real issues around these three characters in this department. One's a real team player, and two, are not um, we, not me at all. They're very, very insular thinkers. Why is that? Anyway, did a bit more digging about their personal, professional journeys, and found out that actually the and this is this might be this is a very small microism of social science. The two insular thinkers were both soloists in their in their personal lives as musicians, and the and the and the head of the department was was um, was in an orchestra. Now that is the smallest social science experiment I've ever I've ever explained. Of course, only three people, but I think that's a metaphor for potentially why PE teachers have done well in 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 leadership, education, and business. Is because we are, we 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 truly see this we not me mentality needed. So I'm going to stop talking on that question because I think that that probably summarises it nicely. Yeah, Steve. That just coming back there to. To your to your core values, then I, I mean, what are you? What do you really value in yourself, and how do you then transfer that across to others? People said to me, "It is a good story for you." Um, someone said to me last week, "I said, how would you describe me?" And he said, "Oh yeah, you, you, you're you're the mindset man." And I said, "Well, what you're you're, you're you know you're really positive." And I actually got the ump with him and said, "Like that's that's bullshit. Like that's not me. Like I think, Alan, my biggest." USP, as we say in business now, unique selling point. I think it's my subject knowledge. Because I'm so obsessed with learning, and I, I, I need to mention this to your listeners, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not brainy. I'm not intelligent. I just love learning more than the woman and the man down the road. That, that's my biggest strength. And the fact, the fact I'm, I'm pedagogically pretty sound and research-based on pretty sound, and me and Lewis spoke this on the phone last week for an hour, is that if I'm to influence masses of people, Alan, if I'm to influence those, I have to be fact-based rather than opinion-based. And the reason I'm so well-read and you were saying about core values, my number one skill, Alan, is actually, hopefully I know stuff. Yeah. So yeah. because I know stuff, I can impart that stuff, whatever that is, on people. So if that's behavior for learning, men mentoring, if that's uh, coaching, mentoring methodology, if that's leadership, soft skills, um, tactical stuff in football, because, you know, obviously my business has been reasonably successful, not because I'm a nice bloke, Alan, actually because I help people with knowledge. So, yeah, in summary, I can't emphasize that enough. You know, as an AST, I don't know if people, the listeners abroad will know that, but as an advanced skills teacher, you know, you're the good cop. You're the person going around giving people knowledge they haven't got. But remember, we say the best coaches are the best thieves, right? So my knowledge is only stolen from someone else that I've worked with. And, and the, the difference is, lads, is that I probably apply it maybe a little bit better than the mediocre people. Yeah. So, so if we're listening correctly, a, a, lot of, a lot of what you're saying, can you hear me all right? Sorry. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's a little bit quiet, to be fair. Is it? Okay, is that a little bit better? There we go. If, if we're listening rightly, what, you, what you've said there is behaviours allowed you to learn and, and it's created almost your intelligence. You know, you, you're quick to say there that you weren't intelligent as a young lad. You, you, you know, you struggled in school a little bit or you're in the bottom sets. 
So what behaviours did you really um, hit at and really work at to increase that intelligence? So now that so much of your work can be knowledge-based and it can be around helping other people through knowledge and acquisition of it. That's a bloody good question, Lewis, to be fair. I was just going to need some thinking time on that out loud. Yeah. I think um, yeah. that's why I'm obsessed with self-awareness, okay? So without, without self-awareness, and I say this in the book, we cannot change anybody at any time. So let's touch on posh word conscious incompetence. I have to be aware, conscious, that I don't know stuff. And then I have to be aware, conscious competence, I have, to, I have to be conscious that I do know stuff and what I know is actually accurate. So I think that, how did I get to that headspace? I mean, we need to probably touch on, on Howard Gardner's work as well, it talks about multiple intelligences, um, which is a brilliant and fascinating stuff. And and he talks about intelligences which are not academic, you know, the ability to have a good relationship with yourself, the ability to have good relationships with other people as an intelligence, the ability to be a good problem solver, the Olympians, the pianists, the violinists, the artists that have not got a GCC to their name, but managed to forge a career and a happy life with all of these skills. So I think that when you don't do well academically, you know, as my mother would say to me, Son, you are really intelligent, but you're just intelligent maybe in different ways. And I think that maybe where, where school has really helped me and be a teacher is that I knew I wasn't a natural academic and maybe I can empathise with less able kids. I don't, you know, I've always been quite, well, I've always quite enjoyed teaching the less able groups. I've always quite enjoyed teaching kids that initially say they don't like physical education and, and me being kind to them and nurturing them with a, maybe a more innovative curriculum or, yeah, so I think that the behaviours thing comes from the self-awareness to know there's gaps in my, in my toolbox. What are those gaps in my toolbox? And then, really, this, this is quite complex, but I've got a decision to make. Do I go and improve those gaps in my toolbox? Or do I admit that I can't be brilliant at everything and then go and get, you know, as I say, an expert hires an expert, go and get someone that can do something that I can't do? And in football, compared to education, that's a lot easier. Let me explain. I'm academy manager at Millwall, but I head up player welfare. But I don't know anything about strength and conditioning, which is genuinely true. I know nothing. So I need to go and get someone that's brilliant at that. Then we need to go and get head of recruitment that's brilliant at that, blah, blah. The difference with teaching is, is that you almost have to be jack of all trades. You know, if you're a vice principal, you have to have, your, 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 you know, your touch on data. You have to be good with your behavior for learning. You have to know about leadership management. You have to know about teaching and learning. So I think that... Um, Football has enabled me to niche, but the beautiful thing about education is giving me a broad spectrum of what teaching and learning looks like for, for many people, adults and, and kids. Yeah, yeah you, I'm really interested there, Steve, where you, you, you only, I don't know stuff and you only know what you know is a really good saying. Um, yeah. I, when you've got gaps in your toolbox, what's driving you to, to go and and get those things is it something that's just inside is it something that's been learned you see so many kids that are that are intelligent they've got skills but they don't quite have that drive to go and do it how did you do that all right out this is such a brilliant question i said this to the scottish um a license on a webinar yesterday this is really important someone in in a school yeah they're going to be a downgrade Right. Every single year nine kid in the whole world has had the best teacher. They've had a best teacher. So they've had a best coach. They've had it. They felt it. They've seen it. So if you don't do what they do, in a 14-year-old's eyes, you're a downgrade. 
Like, pardon my French, who the fuck would want to be a downgrade? We get one life. No, we get one life. And then you're saying, well, I'm not, you know, this is what's mad about education, guys. It's mental that we've got teachers that all have the same qualification. Yeah, it's mental. And some teachers are X factor good and change lives. And some teachers are not being rude or rubbish. Right? How do those teachers not know that they're not very good? And how do they, how do they go and do something about it? So my point is, I was probably in the middle. I don't think I was at the bottom when I started my career. I was probably in the middle. Firstly, because I love what I do. Secondly, because I love my subject. So, you know, your subject knowledge in phys ed has got to be like any type, any teacher, isn't it? You know, you've got, to, you've got to teach stuff. You've got to know stuff. You've got to know your own curriculum. But again, the next phase was, I don't want to be, I don't want to be the downgrade teacher. So the obsession almost comes from panic where like, well, I'm going to work Monday to Friday and then get grief all week. Or I'm going to work Monday to Friday and have a really good time and the kids really like me because I'm really good at what I do. <laughs> Like, yeah, quite straightforward, really. Just not you, wanting to be downgrade. You say it like that, it makes perfect sense. But but there will be people who do have a bad time Monday to Friday. And maybe it is that there's a gap in their toolbox. What, what can they do to reflect and, and find that gap and be more self-aware? Well, firstly, they need to know that they've got gaps. So that, yeah, again, I think that, you know, we've all done mentoring and coaching. And sometimes when we mentor and coach, people can't see it. It's in their blind spots. So then we're looking at the soft skills and the ability to lead and manage with, with your voice, your tone, your way, your manner. You know, we talked about character off air, Alan, didn't we? And if, I, if I've got a teacher that I'm mentoring with an unbelievable character and I know they're doing extras, without stating the obvious, as a school leader, I'm going to give them more time because I know they're not taking the piss. But then if I've got teachers that are trying to cut corners and not do the right things and not doing extracurricular and not marking their books properly, I'm seeing trends of, trends of controllables that are an issue. And the controllables are, guys, aren't they? Work hard. Yeah. They're the controllables. Yeah. They're, they're the things that are easily done. So I think that's the first issue. And then the next thing, we talk about accelerated learning for the kids all the time. What about accelerated learning for the staff? They have got to learn pretty damn quick. And, and, and in fairness to the staff, you know, a, a mentoring model would be, I'd go and do a lesson observation week one. Uh, I might do another one just to reconfirm what I'm doing, but I wouldn't do more than two observations. I'd then go and team teach and model it. You know, and you know as well as I do, kids haven't got a clue. And I'm like, all right, sir, what are you doing? I'm just seeing how you're getting on with your learning today. You know, you can get around that quite quick. And then, then you model that behaviour for as long as you need to. The teacher then has to liven up pretty quick. And then you phase yourself out and, and pretty much I could, I could probably impact a teacher pretty much in six weeks, I'd say. So, but again, you know, you're always going to give them eight weeks, nine weeks, if you see a great character and a great attitude. Um, so, yeah, that, that's probably the simplest answer to that question, mate. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, you've touched upon character there. Today's generation, the what the snowflake generation we call them. How is it important now that we can actually teach some of those character traits that maybe we took for granted 20, 30 years ago when we were growing up on council estates and we're resilient and we're hard? How do we teach that to the to the current generation? Um, I say in my book about independence. If we just touch on that. You can't tell a 15-year-old boy or girl from Peckham, Lewisham, Plumstead, Deptford, Greenwich, Thamesmead to be independent because they'll go, sir, what the F are you talking about? I don't understand you. <laughs> um, so this is where I'm obsessed with learning to learn and this is all my pedagogical stuff. And I have to say this to the listeners that my master's degree changed my life. So I thought I was a good leader, guys, and then I did my master's degree and I realised I was a rubbish leader because there was this toolbox of knowledge that I didn't even know existed and I was embarrassed absolutely embarrassed 
that I didn't have access to, the, to this pedagogy. So I went to King's College, I did a master's degree in teaching, learning, ed, psych and leadership. And a guy called Dr. Bob Burstow pretty much changed my life. He gave me access to knowledge I didn't even actually know existed. So um, when you're talking about how do we create, going back to the question, growth, et cetera, for young people, you can't just tell a kid to be independent. They, they don't know what that means and how it feels. So my, my, my golden nugget is all the meta learning stuff. It's all the learning to learn. And the learning to learn stuff is still not going on in schools. And it's not going on in really academic schools because the academic schools traditionally don't need to change anything because the kids kill knocking out great results. But the learning to learn stuff is, is about, you know, standard study skills stuff, but really about, I mean, how many teachers guys do lessons, lessons on asking good questions? None. How many teachers do lessons on note taking? How many teachers do lessons on peer assessment and how effective it can be? How many teachers do lessons on what self-assessment is, what it looks like, how it feels, how we monitor our own learning? We don't. So instead of talking about geography, history, science, maths, PE, we need to talk about how we learn about it. Right? Which brings the learning process back a, mile, a massive step. Because what we're seeing is, is that kids either can't access the learning because they haven't got the tools, they haven't got the ability to question well, they haven't got the ability to peer assess well. They haven't got the ability to understand that I have to listen um, or I have to I have to not talk about match of the day after 30 seconds on a peer assessment task. I have to genuinely do it, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, I think the learning to learn stuff is, is life changing, particularly for the less able kids that haven't got access to being a good learner. And so, they, so the answer to that question now, when I talk about independence, I, I think, therefore, when I talked about my subject knowledge, I've got more meat to the bone because I'm saying, well, we can't just tell kids to be independent. We need to give them a scaffold and a structure to be independent. Now, kids don't even want to Google these days out, do they? No, the, they it, can't be bothered. You did, yeah, you, you're entirely right. And, and, and one of the values of, of working overseas is that we're not subject to UK national curriculum. We, we're not subject to have to do qualifications. We can explore IB diplomas where it is more skills based and, and, and going down the line of, of character and things like that. But what would your utopia be? You say you went back into education, you had a government role. What would you do in then to the UK to make sure that this is actually happening? Because it's gone away from it. It's rote learning again. What would you do? I'll call them exam factories in the book. And I don't, I don't um, shy away from that statement. Um, in fairness, I know lots of head teachers that would like to provide a different curriculum, but their hands tied as well. So it's not, it's not about bashing. The irony is it's about educating the educators, isn't it? And when I mean the educators, I mean, I mean some of the inept people at government level that have no idea about how to lead education. And I think we need to touch on this. Matthew Side mentioned this in his book, Bounce, which is unbelievable. It's the best, most powerful thing in the book. When he says, like, we all do 10,000 hours of practice as teachers and we become an expert, but then Michael Gove goes from head of, uh, head of education for about 18 months to then head of um, foreign affairs to then head of something else. And I'm like, well, that's like me becoming like, a plumber. <laughs> uh, I'm, telling, I'm telling all the plumbers how to plumb houses, but I don't actually know what I'm talking about. So why do the government officials not actually stay in role for 10 years? Because then they can become experts at what they're talking about. So that would be the first thing I would change. You know, legislation that we're being led by people that don't actually, not in a rude way, they don't actually know what they're talking about. And I mean that because what, how, that, that is honestly like me becoming head of French. 
I, I, I would, wouldn't know what I'm actually doing. So I think that, that would be the first issue. And I think on, a, on an operational level, I would have, I would have GCCs and entrepreneur, entrepreneurship and leadership. So if there's any listeners out there that can be bothered to do that, you're probably going to nick some money off me because I haven't got the time, but that was what I would do. No, I mean it. I, that's, that will happen in 10 years. And then you watch this space. I said it now. I would have GCCs in mental health. I would call core PE uh, health and well-being. I would get away from the the, the core, core PE. I would just I would just change it up completely. Just you know change the the, the model, the umbrella, the theme. To, uh, head teachers still see us as games teachers. Some of them because their experiences of physical education was games. I'm very proud to be a physical education teacher. I'm very proud to be an educationist. I'm very proud to be a new school kind, innovative PE teacher that that teaches. Um, science and teaches maths within my subject and literacy and gets kids to fully feel safe so I think we need to change the label of phys ed massively um, and yeah so I think really you know Bristol Uni um, has had 13 suicides in three years and this isn't about blaming Bristol Uni here by the way but what what, what the f are we doing guys when when we've got this school system that says yeah you've got to be brainy to have a happy life but most people, I mean, I live in London, a lot of people in London hate their job. What, so we're going to uni to get a degree, to, to mummy and daddy are telling us to go to school to get a job that we don't like. Like, pardon my French, again, what the fuck are we doing? Like, what is that about? No, but what is that about? We go, we're, going to, we're telling our kids to go to uni to do this, to do that, to then be unhappy. So I'm not saying education doesn't make you happy because I think we all know it gives us a choice. But we've got to be really careful that my lens on the world, Steve Salis, is not Alan's lens and it's not Lewis's lens. And, you know, it's not Jake Humphrey's lens and Simon Menemy's lens. It's a, it's a different lens on the world. And, and therefore, as educators, we cannot impart our constant passion on these children that are influenced by us, may I add. But we may be, just maybe, we may be incorrect. You, you touched upon well-being there and, and you... Your education utopia sounds outstanding, and, and uh, many aspects of what you've talked about there have been hours of discussion for, for, for me with Alan and, and, and a lot of the staff and colleagues we've worked with, and, and one of the big ones is well-being. Um, you're from a very much a teaching and learning background, um, and historically in schools, there's been very much a, a pastoral approach or a teaching and learning approach, or a, is teaching and learning more important than a pastoral side of things? And how do those two intertwine and dovetail to really be effective in school? Do you have any views on, on where well-being is crucial and, and what role teaching and learning plays within supporting children's well-being? I have to, I have to mention this. This is a great uh, light bulb for me. You know, often people say, I don't remember what, what, what my teacher taught me. I remember how they made me feel. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was all right in 1985, right? but it's not all right in 2020. Your job as a teacher is to teach kids stuff. And if you teach the kids stuff, they then get confident because you teach them stuff. They can then apply it and then they get more confident. And then they like you because you teach them stuff. So being kind, I think that's standard anyway. Being kind, soft, gentle, aspirational, know your subject or standard but the the pastoral stuff in a teaching and learning context has to come from do you make the kids better at what you're supposed to do right, that's bread and butter school school improvement do you make your kids better 
from the start they come in at that baseline to the end point over three, five years or whatever it is, sometimes seven years. So I think that's the thing. But I think from a pastoral point of view, strategically, like we're still doing PSHE, like that needs relabeling. Uh, we still need to, we still need to drive primary curriculum in terms of making it synchronized between primary and secondary. What do I mean by that? We're still obsessed with, you know, if you go back before Progress 8, it was English and, English and maths overkill. Kids were leaving geography, history, maths and science to do English intervention. And remember, they're doing English intervention, not because English and maths is not important, because the government are saying it's important. Does that make sense? Yeah. Government are saying it's more important. By the way, we all know it's important, but how can we say the word broad and balanced curriculum if English and maths is going to take over history, science, PE, et cetera, et cetera? Would, would, so there be a, would there be a context, Steve, where it might be more important to show a child that you care and you want to build a relationship with them that then allows them to be feeling comfortable enough to access the learning? Because you were quite yeah. adamant there, weren't you, that the learning has to come first because then the care is shown through the learning and then the child has learnt something and, and will show that you, you show that you care. And so they show that they're happy and, and they're, they're grateful that they've learnt something from you and then off you go on that journey. Could it, could it ever work the other way? You've said yourself, you work in some really difficult schools and I imagine that there are some children in that, those schools who are switched off to education and, and until you show that you do want to get to know them and, and you do want to help and support them, that maybe you can't teach them anything. They, they won't learn. As, as, and listen, I'm glad you've realigned me. I said at the start of the podcast, don't take what I say literally, so I have to be careful my language. But children won't let you care about them until they know that you care, right? So I think that, that that's massive. But I think we need to get away from, oh, yeah, that, you know, kids would say to me, oh, yeah, that teacher's all right, laugh. Oh, yeah, he's all right. Oh, that teacher doesn't allow me to wear my tie. Oh, that teacher says it's all right not wearing my school shoes. Well, all those teachers are doing is letting everyone else down. So that's the first, that's the first message. The second message is, is obviously soft skills are hugely important, like hugely important. And my persona on this podcast is, is, is you know, me being elite performance world, but having that ability to soften my tone, my language, my style, girls groups, uh, key stage three groups, even key stage two, you know, working with a lot of primary school kids over the years, you soon learn that your language and your tone and the sound of your voice has to be completely different to that of, uh, of a key stage four bottom set, you know, PE group. So I think that you're right. But if you looked at the number one issue around school improvement, Lewis, the number one, particularly in the UK, is teachers not actually doing what they're paid to do because we're not paid as a classroom teacher to be every kid's mate. We are paid to add value to their learning. All I'm saying is if I was going to have one or the other, I would go with, with a teacher all day long that had that, had that ability to add value to someone's skills, um, et cetera, et cetera, rather than, you know, that pastoral sense. But we've got, we've got strategies in place for pastoral care, right, right uh, Lewis? And, and let's be honest, mate, the great teachers do everything anyway, don't they? <laughs> they connect, well, they yeah, the, the great teachers do do both. And um, 
what what have you found uh, has been the order or the way that that's worked outside of teaching and into coaching? Give us a bit of context there, because obviously you're in a a wonderful position to share with us here. Um, the the kind of similarities that you've seen between high quality teaching and high quality coaching, and how those things differ, and where the the well being side of things and the pastoral care comes into coaching when you see maybe a child for an hour or two once a week compared to maybe a child for several hours across the week and, and, and for some I imagine in your role as a deputy in teaching and learning for quite a few hours every single day there's quite a different dynamic there right so how, how is that different in coaching than it is to teaching? Yeah timelines are significantly different I, I, what I learned about going from school to Millwall was is that Millwall was the first time in my life that I'd ever used the top five percent of my subject knowledge and that wasn't any, in any way detriment to the kids I had at school but I'm now dealing with elite athletes so it was really nice, actually, the top 5% of my knowledge I'm finally using. And, and again, in a more able school, um, you'd probably have that anyway. You know, if you're a high-achieving school with really great A-level results and GCC results, as a teacher, you would have to be like that. But as a teacher, I never really had to be that because I never worked with kids that are really high-end. So I think that that was the first message. I think, again, obviously working with, with the England uh, under-15 squad for a couple of years, I learned that the opposite needed to be. So when I talked about the teachers, teaching and learning was really important and pastoral was less. In, in On an England camp, I just had to connect with the lads as quick as possible. And I had to change my style, my strategy immediately. These kids are already X Factor good. They don't need me telling them what to do. What they need to do is feel safe on an England camp. They need to feel calm. They need to feel valued. They need to feel respected. They, yeah, they're just, you know, going back to Maslow stuff. They need to, they need to feel safe and calm and, and relaxed about just you know what we said on England camp is just enjoy yourself mm. so it's very contextual it sounds like it's very contextual it, it depends very much on on where the children are at where where you are with those children and, and what the kind of objective of that that time together is I think what well, I think great teachers change their persona by the minute you check now you could be barking at a kid one minute and then the next girl walks in or boy and you go hello to sweetheart how are you today how's your day going are you good? Are you okay? What's going on? And that ability to sense and smell the, yeah, the context. I mean, you mentioned context off air. Context massive, isn't it? Mm. So, you know, smelling the audience, smelling your group and understanding, you know, small things like you don't teach the same way on a Monday period one as you do on a Friday period five. You don't, you don't, you can't do that. You don't get that told that at uni. You have to learn that on the job. You know, I didn't, I, here we go, here's a, here's a really good point for you. I created, and I'm really proud of this, this is something that I didn't steal, I created a speak how you write policy. So we, instead of doing exam questions, I would ask the kids to verbalise it. Now, really bloody difficult task to do for a GCCPE question, but the kids were so fed up with writing on a Friday, I mean, well, I call it the graveyard shift, right? It's a Friday period five, remember, all the kids don't want to be there, and they all hate you, and they want to go home. So I just created, to, to, to avoid them writing, I created a speak how you write policy. So they had to answer, name the four functions, skeleton, and they had to verbalize it exactly how they would write, including full stops, new sentences and commas. And when I got Austin inspected on that, I actually, you know, I was fortunate enough to get an outstanding on that because he said he'd never seen that before, right? Because it was done to the, no, the kids were unbelievable at it. But in terms of Ofsted, you know, we know they're so pain in the ass anyway, but in terms of Ofsted, but in terms of speaking and listening, this this be genuine here, speaking and listening literacy, it was it added massive value to the kids, you know, in their ability to articulate 
Um, and we know in teaching and learning, that's the hardest thing that the kids do that are less able. They really struggle. They have the answers, but they haven't got the vocabulary to be able to articulate what they're actually thinking and feeling. Hey, I think, I think Steve, we're all magpies as it's got called. Ryan Campbell on one of our last podcasts, he talks about teachers being magpies. We steal from everywhere. We make it our own. We change it around. I love that idea, and that's certainly something I'm going to be a magpie over. Um, we're going to wind it down a bit, Steve, and we'll start with some quick-fire questions towards the end. Um, I'll start you off. What book are you reading at the moment? Oh, I've got, I've got about five. Um, but the one I've got, I've got a highlight pen, and I'm reading uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, right? It's 1920. That, that is probably the best book I've ever read. I got excited when you said it. It's been re-edited a hundred times. It is incredible. Everybody should read yeah. that book in their life. Everybody should. It's fantastic. Unreal. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, I like that one. Um, this is one of our favourites now. What three leaders in history, dead or alive, would you like to go out for a meal with? Oh, wow. Um, I'd have to go out with Sir Alf Ramsey. Yeah. Um, I would have to do that for people that don't know. Obviously, he was the England manager for 1966 World Cup. Um, other leaders, um, Winston Churchill, probably because just listening to his views on life. I haven't really done a lot of research on Churchill, but I would like to understand him. Um, and then, honestly, this is another football one, but, but, but probably Bobby Robson. And Bobby Robson was, was humble, he was kind, he was the opposite of an autocrat. He was, you know, opposite of being draconian and he led with influence. And I haven't mentioned on the podcast today about influence. You know, it's not teaching, learning, coaching, management. It's about how we influence people. And actually linking to the book, Carnegie talks about the people, uh, the, the feeling of wanting. So let me just explain this. Um, leaders, tell something tell somebody something because they want something done all right happy with that quite straightforward but the person receiving it has got to want when you tell and it's the feeling of want and great influence is when i go right john can you go and do that and john goes oh flipping out i've got to do it because i want to do it not because john has to do it and I think, again, that, that's what great leadership is for me, is, is the ability to influence people because they want to do it. Yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah. So what, what are your three non-negotiables as, a, as an academy director, as a guy who's working with elite footballers on a day-to-day basis? What are the three things you demand? Character um, is straight away off the tip of my tongue. Good character. You know, I talked about we talked to off air again about character or caliber, GCC and character development. Why is that not happening? Kids <laughs> learning about what character is and then having to write an exam on it. That'd be ten times more exciting than some of the nonsense they have to do in schools. And we know that it would, get them, it would do them really well in life. Let's be honest. Imagine that GCC and character. Um, yeah, I would. I would. Um, I would teach learning to learn probably more. So listening. I think listening's you know two ears one mouth that type of thing. But I don't we, we you know we do speaking and speaking and listening in schools, but we do lots of speaking, not a lot of listening. So active listening, I think, would be really important. And along with that character, I think that character incorporates hard work. So I'm not going to say hard work. I'm actually going to say um, almost like intuition and knowing your super strengths. That would be my advice to any teacher or young person. You know, we've all got super strengths, everybody. Like everyone's got them. We need to find them, and then we need to go and build a career around that. 
And if you haven't got someone else's super strength, then you go on someone else that can hire, hire you and you hire them. And we can't know everything. So that would be those three probably. Cool. Top man. The, the last one for you. Um, our podcast, Infinite Leaders Live, and, and, and our whole idea is around infinite learning and, and leading and learning we know are so very closely linked. What, what does infinite learning mean to you? Well, in my world, I actually said it yesterday to a friend of mine, lifelong learning, really. No, so I think that I say this earlier on the podcast or off air. I, you know, we talk about we ask the kids to be lifelong learners. So how how dare we as as educators that we ask the children to do it, but we don't do it ourselves? So what does that mean in an applied sense? Um, Carol Dweck's standard stuff, growth mindset. But how can we have a load of teachers that have got a fixed mindset, guys? How is that actually possible? How have we got people in the building as adults with a teaching degree that don't actually think with a growth mindset? So we do growth mindset for the kids. And in my book, I tell you, we need to do it for the adults. So we need to be aware of where we're at. We need to have the soft skills to say, you know what, Lewis, I don't know that. But that then requires vulnerability. And vulnerability sometimes in a rubbish culture is really difficult to do. Vulnerability with, with correct culture is, is, is easier to do. But then that goes back to fundamental levels of leadership. So lifelong infinite leadership lifelong learning right that's that's just us always being self-aware enough to know that we we are just in this headspace we're just a little person in the world that other people as i in fact i end it on this note everybody knows more than somebody yeah too true lifelong learners practice what you preach go out there and try and be better day by day steve thanks so much for your time really appreciated that Thank you, fellas. A real pleasure having you. Great to discuss these stories as well. So thanks. Top man. Thank you. Guys, search Infinite Leaders Live on IGTV, YouTube, and on all podcast platforms. And remember, you can find Alan and I on Twitter, um, everything at theinfinitelearners.com. And we're also on all podcast platforms now as well. So please do share our podcast and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. And we'll see you all next time. Cheers. Tara. Thanks, Steve.